hello everyone, I'm Tom Merrill. Uh, I'm a professor of government at American University. Um, this is the lecture, uh, Do Humanities, or a conversation, Do Humanities have, have a Future? Liberal Education Between Technocracy and uh, Radicalism. We're here with uh, Ross Douthit of the New York Times. Um, before I introduce Ross more fully, I need to uh, mention some upcoming events for the Political Theory Institute. Uh, as you may know, we've had a series of events about uh, contemporary politics. Uh, we've had an event on does socialism have a future and does conservatism have a future. Uh, our third event will be um, does the middle have a future and our speaker will be uh, Bill Galston of Brookings Institution. The date for that will be October 26th uh, via Zoom. Uh, and then after the election, we have one more event, which will be Fashion, Identity, and Freedom of Expression with Gwendolyn Grewal, or Grewal, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, of the New School of Social Thought. That will be November 19th. Uh, so please come back for those. If you want to find those, you can find them on our website. Um, this is our annual Lincoln Scholars Lecture. Um, Lincoln Scholars is a Cortex cert certificate program for first and second year students at AU that I direct. We, uh, in Lincoln Scholars, we try to promote intellectual and political diversity. We read hard texts and small seminars, and we try to build community outside of the classroom. Right now, some of our students, uh, I think as we speak, uh, are wrestling with Adam Smith and Karl Marx. Others are reading Frederick Douglass and Henry David Thoreau. And some of us are gonna wake up early tomorrow morning to uh, try to figure out Simone de Beauvoir. So Ross, please don't keep us too late since we, we have some work to do. <laughs> Um, if there are any high school students in the audience uh, or their parents, uh, we encourage you to apply to AU and to apply to Lincoln Scholars. We'd love to hear from you. So you can find us on the web if you just Google Lincoln Scholars at American University. Um, I also need to say some thank yous. I need to say thank you to uh, Alan Levine, my colleague, who is the uh, director of the Political Theory Institute, who organized the speaker series this year and has done a great job. So I wanna say thank you to him. I also wanna say thank you to Vicki Wilkins, who is the Dean of the School of Public Affairs, who's been a big supporter of Lincoln Scholars um, and it, without whom really tonight's lecture would not have been possible. So uh, I just wanna say thank you to her as well. Um, tonight is our third Lincoln Scholars lecture. Two years ago, we heard from Cornell West and Robbie George, who talked about the purpose of a liberal education. One year ago, Danielle Allen spoke to us about the Declaration of Independence. Uh, our speaker tonight, is Ross Douthat, columnist for the New York Times. He's the author of several books, uh, which I'm not gonna all list, but including most recently, The Decadent Society, How We Became Victims, Became the Victims of Our Own Success. I think he's widely recognized by people across the political spectrum as one of the most thoughtful commentators on American politics and culture, and certainly somebody that I've learned a lot from over the years. And so, Ross, I haven't uh, been able to say this to you before, but I just want to say thank you for the work that you've done. Um, he, he does have a lot to say about uh, Donald Trump and other issues related to the election, but we have tried to put a moratorium on all such discussion, even though we are at American University and there's nothing else that anybody else wants to talk about. Um, we asked him here tonight to talk about the condition of the universities and especially the humanities. Uh, and so the title of his lecture is, uh, Do the Humanities Have a Future? Liberal Education Between Technocracy and Radicalism. So Ross, I just wanna say welcome and we're looking forward to the discussion. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really a pleasure to be here. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I welcome everyone in the audience to my attic, which hopefully looks well-appointed and intellectual. 
um, in its sort of bare garret space behind me. Ross, I've seen you now in several webinars, and I have to say, I've grown familiar with that attic. So, <laughs> I, think you might I mean, I'm I'm very I'm always impressed with the people who have the sort of you know highly impressive bookshelves behind them. If I did a webinar in front of my bookshelves, a small child would run across the screen at like you know thirty second intervals. So, the attic is really the place to be. Right. Uh, so I'm just going to say one thing to the audience. Uh, we are going to have a period of Q&A. We're going to talk for about 45 minutes or maybe a little bit more, depending on how things go. Um, but we do want to hear your questions. Um, if you have a question, you should put it into the Q&A box at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Um, and when you do so, you should um, give us your affiliation so that we uh, know who you are, give us your name and, and your affiliation. Um, we do take questions first from students. So if you are a, a current student at AU, please um, write that down so that we'll know. Um, we do have somebody who will be curating the questions for us. That's uh, Gabe Whitbread. Um, and so we'll, we will try to answer as many as we can when we, when we get to the Q&A section. Uh, Ross, I thought we would organize our conversation by just trying to go through the, the uh, words, the ideas in your title. Um, which uh, I'm going to read it again because it's so good. Um, do the humanities have a future? Uh, liberal education between uh, radicalism and technocracy. I think the title went through a couple of different versions, so we maybe um, have different. It was between technocracy and radicalism, but then the radicals won. So yeah. here we are. Right. Um, I think I, I think we should just start with the the premise that's implicit in the question, the beginning of the title. Um, do the humanities have a future? That implies that it's open-ended, that there, it might not have a future, that it might even be in crisis and maybe even an existential crisis. So can you tell us what you mean um, when you ask the question, do the humanities have a future? Why is that something that people should worry about? Sure. So, I mean, to be really technically correct, the title probably should have been, do the academic humanities have a future? Um, but that's not quite as good a sales pitch for turning out on a Thursday night to hear, to hear us talk. Um, but, but I think that's, you know, the humanities have a future as long as there are human beings in the sense that, you know, as long as there are people to read and write and create art and respond to it, the humanities are not, are not going to go away. They may rise and ebb in various contexts, but they will be with us until the very end, whatever that end may be. My job is permanent. That's what you're telling me. Well, you know, <laughs> until, until God calls us all, you know, until the rapture basically, um, or the alien invasion one, whichever comes first. But, but the academic humanities are in a lot of trouble, just in sort of, you know, in independent of debates um, about their substance, what's actually happening in academic departments. Um, it's very clear that institutionally they've fallen on hard times. Um, and this is, you know, the idea that the humanities are in crisis is not at all new. You know, you can basically as like, probably as long as the Modern Language Association has been meeting, right, there have been pieces, you know, saying are the humanities in crisis. But if you just take um, basically student enrollment uh, as an indicator of um, an academic area's health and potential longevity, then what you see is basically there was a sort of strong dip in humanities enrollment. Well, there was sort of a peak in the 1950s and 1960s for reasons that we can dig into a little later. Then there was a dip um, thereafter from sort of the 70s onward. And then there was kind of stabilization. And that led a lot of people to say that, you know, whatever the crisis was, it was not an existential crisis, um, or the worst crisis had passed and so on. But then 
basically about 12 or 13 years ago after the Great Recession, there was a new acceleration of decline. Um, and it's happened, um, you know, across disciplines, it's happening in English departments and history departments and, uh, you know, and so on. Um, it, but it's also happening in big colleges and small colleges, public colleges and private colleges, fewer students, it's happening at elite, elite private institutions and state schools. And there are of course exceptions, but overall the trend in enrollment has been down and down and down. And this has um, sort of coincided and helped further cause the erosion of academic job opportunities for people who study the humanities at the graduate level. Um, so you have a sense of um, kind of apocalypse that hangs over uh, the academic job markets in the humanities. And, you know, I wrote a couple columns about this that are probably one reason why you very kindly asked me to talk about it. Both of them were written pre-COVID. Um, one of them worked off the analysis of uh, um, a guy named Ben Schmidt, I believe, who did sort of, you know, who had sort of earlier written a piece some years ago saying actually the crisis of the humanities is overblown and then by 2017 or 2018 he was saying no uh, you know it was overblown then it's not overblown now um, and then the more recent piece I did was off a big package in the Chronicle of Higher Education whose title was just the word endgame right? and it was basically all about sort of debates about what the humanities should be, but all of it under the shadow of a crisis of enrollment and academic job opportunities. And again, all pre-COVID, um, post-COVID, at least for the foreseeable future, there, I believe, is no academic job market. Um, and it's hard to imagine that student enrollment in the humanities is going to reverse itself in a period of so much turbulence, professional uncertainty in colleges, um, plus the transition of academic life to, uh, in many cases, to Zoom. So that's, that's the story of what it means. It's why we're, why we're asking the question in a structural and rather than just intellectual sense, I guess. Right. So, so there's a crisis that, that is, is a real, in, in some ways, real job crisis, right? But right. It's not just like, oh, the humanities are in crisis because everyone's a postmodernist now or something like that. I mean, that may be part of the crisis, but um, that's the, the, the no. crisis is literal and observable and quantifiable. It's not just a matter of a sort of intellectual diagnosis. It's also not just simply a matter of COVID. This is something that's deeper right. and longer, and who knows how long the COVID period will last, right? But but uh, presumably it will, the problems will still be there. Um, okay, so well, so that's the problem, right? So jobs are going away, but but because student enrollment is going down, um, and that seems to indicate somehow a lack of market demand. I guess one would say, if when we're seeing this in an economist point of view. Um, so in the, the other words in your title, um, it seemed to give us, uh, let's say, competing versions of what the cause or com competing accounts of what the cause is. I think that's fair to say. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk uh, first about the, the radicalism dimension, right? There's technocracy and radicalism in your title. And I think that the, and, I, and maybe just explain what, what you mean when you use that word. So, I mean, I mean a couple different things. Uh, I, I think that the claim that the humanities have entered eclipse or gone into decline or become irrelevant 
um, because of something called radicalism is very common to political conservatives. And since I'm some kind of political conservative, it's probably not surprising that I think there's something there. But I think it's, you know, what we mean by radicalism conflates a few different things. One is sort of particular intellectual approaches to texts that, um, you know, take different forms, uh, you know, deconstructionism and postmodernism and so on are all complicated <laughs> intellectual patterns that I'm not fully qualified to unpack. But there is a sort of common thread of, you know, a kind of a, a mix of sort of suspicion, suspicion of ideas of sort of canonical greatness in literature, um, you know, sort of reading readings of texts that seek to interrogate more than appreciate them or appreciate them by interrogating them, um, attempts to sort of, you know, blow up and then transform or expand the canon uh, to include more diverse voices rather than just dead white males. Um, all, of, all of which has sort of a political component, but then, can be sort of sharpened, I think, into a view of the purpose of humanities as sort of more overtly political, as sort of a site for um, training people in the tools they need to to re to revolutionize society, basically. Right. And you're um, not just talking about, let's say, student protest, which is something that that people sometimes get worked up about. But you know, from a in a grand scheme of things, that's sort of what students, that's what young people are supposed to do. Uh, I mean, aren't you talking about something that's broader and, and is happening in departments, but also maybe even more importantly in university administration? Would that be a fair statement? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the yeah, the turn, I mean, it, there's, there's sort of a cycle of these things, right? Where there's sort of recurring periods where various forms of radicalism seem to sort of rise and crest, um, within academic life in particular. And obviously the 60s is the original case, but then you have the, you know, the periods of, again, debates over the canon, over programs on so-called Western civilization in the 1980s, sort of culminating in the PC wars of the early 1990s, where the term political correctness becomes a subject of national debate. And then that period sort of recedes, and now we're in a kind of third wave where instead of PC, People would say probably wokeness, um, you know, social justice warriors. These are sort of, they've become more pejorative terms from the right. Um, you could talk about intersectionality. You could talk about anti-racism um, as, as a frame. There are a lot of different frames and no sort of single way of distilling this. Yeah. Um, but it is something that is, you know, it's sort of a, a vision of political transformation that is one, very powerful in some parts of the humanities in some English and literature and philosophy departments and so on. And it's also, as you said, something that then extends into um, trying to, well, trying to transform all of society, but starting by transforming the life of the university um, by sort of creating a kind of managerial bureaucracy dedicated to, um, you know, initially sort of stewarding and protecting multiculturalism and diversity, and then um, as sort of the radicalism quotient increases towards like making the interrogation of whiteness, right? The, you know, the overthrowing or critiquing of white privilege, patriarchy, and so on, an organizing premise, an organizing program for at least part of the university. Um, and again, this isn't 
this doesn't perfectly map onto you know readings of Foucault in English departments, um, but it doesn't not map onto it either, right? It does. There's a there's a connection between those sort of intellectual trends and strategies and what sort of especially now younger activists want the university as a whole to be about and ultimately society as a whole. Right. Well, that certainly fits with, with my experience. I mean, I, you get the impression from some universities that, you know, when they talk about general education, that, that on the one hand, they want to say there's no single thing that all students need to read. On the other hand, everybody has to take a class on anti-racism, right? right. That's, a, that's a pretty typical thing. Um, right. And anti-racism has its own developing canon, right? You would, you know, you would obviously read Ibram Kendi, you would read ta Coates, you know, and you would read a certain set of authors going somewhat back in time, though, maybe not too far back, too far back in time. Um, but the point of that canon is, again, transformation rather than, um, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're not, it, it's not a theory that you're reading Kendi because he's the greatest philosopher of all time. It's the theory that you're reading Kendi because he is giving you a blueprint for how to change your own life and how to change the life of the university, um, which is, again, overlaps with some ideas of why you read Emerson, but is also somewhat different. Right, right. Um, okay, so, so now let's, let's talk about the second word in your title, the technocracy. Um, and that might be a word that some of our viewers are not familiar with. Um, so can you, can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I mean, technocracy sort of just means rule by experts. Um, but in the context of the university, it means sort of train, it means the idea that the purpose of the university is training managerial elites to run complex systems um, to do scientific research, uh, but you know, ultimately to sort of play a managerial role in an extremely complex society in which you need certain level of technical expertise to occupy high ranking positions. Um, and I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't joking that really technocracy should come first in the title because technocracy actually precedes radicalism in the history of the modern university. And you can see, I think, reasonably much of radicalism as a reaction, not to some, you know, supposed conservative university that, you know, arguably ceased to exist more than 100 years ago, but to the a very modern, secular, technocratic project, right? So the sort of classic story, which is an oversimplification, but we'll tell it anyway, is that basically starting from Harvard and radiating out to other schools, you had a program from the late 19th century on first to sort of secularize curriculums in schools that had had a religious purpose once upon a time, and then to sort of move away from the idea of some sort of humanities core, which meant Latin and Greek, you know, way back, um, as sort of the core of what an elite education meant to an idea of sort of an education in, again, technical expertise, scientific and managerial skill as the core purpose of the university. And so the humanities were arguably sort of arguably dethroned from their place at the center of the university, you know, a century ago. Certainly they had been dethroned by the 1950s, by the period in which you have sort of the stage setting for, for the 60s and for student protests and so on. You had a clear sense of the university by that point as a kind of corporate entity with a kind of academic component, but that was, you know, sort of in the business of, um, 
in the business of creating a you know class of experts in science, finance, administration, and so on with the idea of reading important texts from the past or learning dead languages as a optional element within that. Um, and so then radicalism becomes, it's, you know, it's many things. It's sort of a political reaction against the extent to which technocracy is placed in the service of the US establishment, right? So if you are, you know, against the war in Vietnam, you will react negatively to the sort of technocratic university that's training people to run the Department of Defense. Um, that you know and that sort of recapitulates itself in various ways in later in later eras so, so some of it is just that sort of overt you know left-wing anti-establishment sensibility but part of it i think is also an attempt to give um give the part of the university that isn't technocratic a reason to exist right um so if you say you know, that the humanities have a political purpose, then you are trying to put them on the same footing in some sense, or even a higher footing than uh, the economics department and, you know, the, the, the vast sort of research apparatus attached, attached to the school. So, and, and it's different, you know, the third, the, the, the other strategy, which, you know, comes in a little bit in certain forms of, literary analysis and so on. But the other strategy for the humanities is to come claim that the humanities are themselves a science just as, you know, just as much as any other technocratic aspect of the university, right? And, you know, you're a, prof you're a professor of political science, right? So like, you know, the, the, the idea of a science of politics is an old idea, but that also gets sort of brought out to say, look, you know, the humanities are, you know, have a place under technocracy because they are also training you for a kind of a kind of mastery but that's that's more available if you're reading john locke than if you are reading willa cather i would say yeah, so, so. so let's let's just dig in for a second on this idea of technocracy because it seems like an important part of your your understanding of the situation um, and first of all, this this part. So the, or the your discussion of radicalism tracks in some ways some familiar critiques from the conservative side of of modern universities, and I think that you're not quite doing that, but but it, you could sort of see it as a cousin. Um, but the techn technocratic part or the critique of technocracy, that sounds like it's a cousin of, of some left, familiar left-wing critiques of the university, right? That the university has been taken over by corporations, mm -hmm. that sees students as customers, mm -hmm. that there's a kind of a vocational attitude in the, in the university. Um, and so it just seems to me that there's something there that needs to be a little bit more talked about. Um, another, there's another word that you sometimes use in your columns that, that um, I think is related, but maybe not the same, which is meritocracy. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, meritocracy is like the way you get technocrats, right? So technocracy is ruled by a credentialed expert class. And meritocracy is, you know, technically the rule by the best or the people who are the most meritorious, but really it's a system for admitting people to universities to train them to become technocrats, right? So meritocracy as a, you know, modern phenomenon takes off as, you know, it's an alternative um, as it takes off to a sort of model of education that is more sort of aristocratic in the old sense of like reflecting certain families and you know that 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 aspect of thing that's you know still 
endorsed to the present day in the form of legacy admissions, but used to play a much bigger role in like the Ivy League. It's also though a, a sort of national, it, it's like a national project, right? So prior to the middle of the 20th century, even the most elite American universities were sort of regional, right? The Ivy Leagues, you know, they were crafting a national elite in the sense that they were providing a lot of people who worked in Wall Street and in US foreign policy, but they were still Northeastern New England institutions, right? Um, and and th the same was certainly true of other universities around the country. You had land-grant state universities that were just, you know, attracting kids from, from those states. And what changes with the SAT above all, with sort of national testing programs and, um, and sort of college admissions that become organized around those is this sense that like at a national level, we are trying to effectively vacuum up the best and the brightest from every part of America, every walk of life. And we're gonna bring them to a select group of schools that are kind of regionally concentrated, mostly in the Northeast. Some of them are on the Pacific coast like Stanford. But then even if they're in you know, the heartland or the Midwest or the South, they themselves will change and become more like the other national <laughs> universities, right? So you get a creation of a kind of universal national university culture where, uh, you know, the really good state schools, UVA, Michigan, you know, Wisconsin, gradually become more like, you know, Cornell and Penn, which becomes more like Stanford and Pomona, because they're all sort of, cre they're creating a single class whose job is then to go first to Washington and Wall Street and do American foreign policy, um, but then to go, you know, to wherever the, you know, wherever the next frontier of leadership and innovation is. So today that means uh, Silicon Valley and, um, you know, the, the, the tech industry. Um, but that's, that's a big, that's a big shift and it's a system, you know, it's a, it's a system that then creates its own culture, right? A, a culture of sort of obsessive, frantic, <laughs> frantic overachievement because the whole theory of it is that you're supposed to, you know, you, you can never rest on your laurels, your family name, you know, can't get you into Harvard, even though sometimes it still can. Um, you have to prove in every generation that you're the best. So meritocrats are, whatever else they are, they aren't lazy, they work incredibly hard. Um, and they get into these schools. And once they get into these schools, the schools are telling them, you know, not always explicitly, but very least implicitly, that their job is to then become technocrats, managers, manipulators of systems. Um, and so in neither, the, in neither the training nor the sort of educational peak of college and then professional schools beyond that, is there a lot of room for the idea that like, you know, we are custodians of some tradition that we're passing on. Um, so what if I said to you, uh, you know, radicalism, right, that's partly the fight that we're having in the culture war right now, because things are so, um, we're so irascible for so many different reasons, right, you know, part, you know, a lot having to do with politics today, but it wasn't really radicalism that killed the humanities. What if we said that it was it was this technocratic meritocratic ideal that that and that when when in some ways the 1960s was really the heyday? You know, what would you say to that? Yeah, I, I'd say that's very plausible. Um, I, I would say that you know there are ways in which I think radicalism can you know has it's an attempt to prevent the marginalization of the humanities that can, in some cases, accelerate it. Um, because I think the 
you know, the radical posture towards, um, towards sort of literary and artistic tradition um, also makes people kind of unhappy <laughs> in their experiences. I mean, there's, you know, there, uh, again, these are sort of exaggerations, but they get at an important truth. There are some really good pieces that have been written, I think one by a guy named John Baskin, who edits a magazine called The Point, um, you know, about just the extent to which in different ways, the culture of the modern left-wing humanities sort of area can just sort of empty the enjoyment totally out of, um, out of you know, the, re the reasons that people want to read or encounter a great text or, or a, great, a great work of art in the first place. And, you know, the, the project of sort of interrogation, the project of sort of saying, you know, in a weird way, it's sort of, it wants to destroy canons, but it's also parasitic on them in the sense that you can't have a project of interrogation unless you have some kind of some kind of canonical list of of books and paintings and symphonies and Wagner operas to be interrogated, That's right? And and so as you move, and you know, you see this this is sort of a constant process at universities as each turn of the radical ratchet moves you further from any kind of canonicity the less interesting it sort of is, right? Like even the, even radicalism, like once you, you know, Yale, I mean, New Haven, right? Yale got, just got rid of its big art history survey course, right? On the grounds that, you know, it's Western art. And so it's too, it's too, you know, Eurocentric and heteronormative and Christian, and, you know, so on down, down a longer list of sins. And my, my assumption is that getting rid of that has to make the radical project less fun because you're, you know, you're not, you're, you're not overthrowing anything anymore. You're just sort of, you know, you're just sort of walking around in the deconstructed wreckage, sort of picking up objects and saying, well, let me interrogate this, but the object doesn't have as much power anymore. So that's my, that's a fairly conventional, but still I think correct conservative <laughs> argument about what, what goes wrong with radicalism. But yeah, I think technocracy comes first as the thing that really starts this whole process in motion. And technocracy is what initially excludes sort of, I won't call it conservatism, I'll call it traditionalism. The, you know, the view that like the purpose of the university is to transmit something, adding to it, you know, adding to the canon as, as things come along that should be added. But that idea of transmission, technocracy is what drives that out before the radicals show up to finish the job, I think. Um, so uh, I, I just want to ask another question about meritocracy that maybe puts these two, the radicalism and meritocracy together, because, you know, uh, higher education is a big part of the way that, that um, the upper classes in America reproduce themselves, right, in, in literal and non-literal ways. Um, but, but yet it also seems that, that uh, the people who are most attracted to the radical options that you were talking about before are precisely in those meritocratic institutions. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think it's a, in some ways, a sort of repetition of a dynamic that you saw in the 1950s and 1960s, um, where, you know, there too, like Students for a Democratic Society, you know, a, a lot of the sort of famous student radicals of the 60s were, you know, not um, necessarily working class, you know, working class Americans or dispossessed minorities. They were children of the post-war boom, raised in, raised in privilege and given reasons to rebel against it. And I think in the same way, 
you know, I think you can trace a, a story across my adult lifetime of growing dissatisfaction with meritocracy um, among people embedded in it and sort of trained by it, right? So when I, I went to college, uh, 1998 to 2002, and that was sort of uh, a high tide, I think, of sort of meritocratic oh, self-confidence. Um, and it, the, um, you know, the, the elite that meritocracy was making could say, look, you know, we won the Cold War, uh, you know, globalization is on the march, Alan Greenspan has figured out the economy, technocrats are winning, it's working, so of course you deserve, you know, you deserve to be where you are. We've done well, you're going to do well. When I started in college, when I started in college, you know, we were explicitly sort of encouraged to go into the humanities by the humanities departments themselves on the grounds that the economy was so good that you could get a job as a, you know, consultant for $100,000 a year with a folklore and mythology degree, no problem. So why not, <laughs> you know, why not go into the humanities, right? That was sort of the mood. That, that was the sales pitch at the time. Um, and a lot has happened since then. Um, you know, one, the elite that meritocracy made turned out to be not as competent as people thought in the 1990s. Um, and you had a succession of things, you know, big obvious blunders like the Iraq war, but also sort of slow burning disasters like our economic relationship to China, right, that have you know, contributed to the era that we find ourselves in today that were ideas that the meritocracy took for granted or the technocrats took for granted. Um, you know, and then you've had specific economic setbacks, the bubble burst, the tech bubble bursting just as I graduated, and then obviously the Great Recession that have, you know, made life harder for college graduates, even elite college graduates, right? Um, and then, and then, and then you have sort of more discrete phenomena where particular industries have come under real pressure, um, like my own industry, journalism, right, which used to be a place that lots of humanities graduates went into, right? If you, you know, spend your years in college reading and writing, uh, you can say, well, I can always go work for a newspaper or a magazine or something. And there are just way fewer of those jobs. Um, academia has come under, you know, its own set of pressures, which aren't just about declining enrollment. Um, and so all of that means that meritocrats are less, and well, and then finally the culture of meritocracy has just become more itself in this sort of punishing, you know, punishing like uh, mental health crushing way. And so people are unhappy with it. They're unhappy. They don't feel like tech, the technocrats know what they're doing in Washington or New York. Uh, there was a brief window with Barack Obama's election where people felt like, okay, the problem was just George W. Bush, you know, and the neocons and so on. And we'll get Obama in there and he's using the internet, you know, and, and Silicon Valley is going to change the world. It's going to make the Arab Spring happen. And here we are 10 years later and everybody thinks Facebook is destroying democracy too. So it's like, you know, Silicon Valley was briefly the savior of meritocracy and now it's yet another reason to to hate it. So all of that, I think, adds up to a tremendous amount of disillusionment. And, you know, there, it's just much more likely to be expressed through, through sort of left politics of various kinds in, in an academic environment for all kinds of reasons. But part of it is just, you know, there, again, if there isn't any kind of real conservatism left in most elite academia, then if you're looking for a critique of technocracy, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna look on the left. And finally, and the other thing is, the deal that the technocrats made after the 60s was to sort of 
maintain technocracy, but always sort of do this kind of homage to more left-wing ideas to say, you know, well, of course we believe in social justice and of course we believe in diversity. You know, I mean, this was the, this was the, you know, the, the spirit of the times when I was in college. And part of what radicalism does is just demand that technocracy cash those checks, right? Says, oh, you believe in diversity. Well, where, you know, where's, where's the money for, you know, why does the business school get all the money? Where's the money for our, you know, our multicultural student center, right? Where's the money for our ethnic studies department? All these kinds of things. So, so in a sense, technocracy, it doesn't, it doesn't have enough self-confidence necessarily to fight really strongly against radicalism, it keeps trying to sort of buy it off with, with uh, programs and spending and sort of rhetorical concessions um, down to the present day. Do you, I mean, uh, sometimes when I read your stuff, I, I get the feeling that you have a lot of sympathy with the radical critique, that you think there's something that is kind of soul killing in the meritocratic idea. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That, that, that the radicals are kind of on to something, even though I take it that you, that you don't, you're, you're not on board with like the specific proposals that they're saying. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the radicals are correct that um, higher education needs some kind of moral vision. Um, I think the radicals are, you know, they're, they're correct to see this sort of technocratic university as soulless and somewhat, somewhat cruel. I mean, to take, you know, to take, to take an example that isn't about race, right? So, so um, debates over sex and rape on campus and so on, right? So on the one hand, I do not favor the sort of system of sexual regulation that I think a lot of, wouldn't even call them campus radicals, we can just call them campus feminists want to set up that sort of removes presumptions of innocence from men accused of rape and sets up a weird kind of like sex bureaucracy. <laughs> that, uh, this is a term that uh, I think Jeannie Sukgerson, a professor, has used to describe this sort of like attempt by the university to kind of manage student sex lives, right? This is, that is not the system that, you know, I, you know, conservative, observant <laughs> Catholic would, would favor. At the same time, when I, when I, it's totally true that the technocratic university was, you know, indifferent to um, horrific, uh, you know, horrific sexual behavior on campus. Um, I guess we're right. Right, right. That like, you know, that in fact, some form of stronger sexual regulation was needed. And the technocratic university just wanted to take student money and promise them a kind of, you know, not animal house level, but, you know, a fun, good time on their way to, so, you know, you sort of, you have hookup culture over here and, you know, you have, uh, you know, getting into business school over here. And those are like the two halves of, of the college experience. And, you know, when I was, I mean, I was, you know, the, the one, the one case study uh, from, from my own undergraduate education where, you know, you had one of these cases of an accusation of sexual assault within our sort of social group. Um, and we didn't know how to handle it. I think we handled it very badly, but um, I remember going to the tutor, you know, the person sort of nominally in charge and bringing this to him. And like, it was so clear that he wanted nothing, you know, nothing to do with helping us think through this, this situation, certainly nothing to do with either like telling the young woman what she should do or what she shouldn't do. The university just didn't want to touch it. And because it didn't want to touch it, you know, a lot of bad things happened among young people who did need some kind of supervision and guidance. And so, you know, the left 
on sex, the left wants a certain kind of remoralization on campus, and it's not my moral system, but um, at least it's an ethos. <laughs> yeah, to quote the big Lebowski, right? Uh, you have to. You know, Thanks you have for to get. You, we're talking about the great works here, I, you know, <laughs> so you know, you have to get that uh, in there. Of course, no, that's uh, that's right. What is what does that word "great works" mean anyway? That's part one of the uh, questions. So, so, um, so I want to pose a question uh, since since I want to move us along to to get to the Q and A. Um, I do want to pose a question. So, if you think that technocracy does not provide a viable or attractive model for um, for academic life, but you also think that radicalism presents problems and we'd have to maybe explore those. Um, is there an alternative vision? Um, but maybe I'd like to pose the question this way. Um, you're, um, you're a parent, right? What kind of college experience do you want for your children? Oh, dear God. So, my, I mean, my kids are nine, seven, four, and six months. But you thought so of the idea, no, man, the idea of like a college experience for them is so totally terrifying. Um, but no, I mean, I think the college experience that I want for my kids is one in which, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm doubtful that they will get it, but it's, it's one in which you go to a school that tells you a little more what you should be studying and what you should care about um, in a way that is, um, not, you know, that doesn't just mean telling you that you should care about taking these six classes that will uh, help you get a job after graduation, right? Should I they mean, want what you had going to Harvard? Should they go? No, no, no. Should they go to Harvard? I mean, look, you know, you, I mean, one, um, you know, in spite of the power of legacy admissions, I don't think there's <laughs> any, any, any guarantee that they'll be getting in. But, you know, I mean, I, I would not have, I was, I, I wanted to go to Harvard because I was, you know, I was really ambitious, right? Like, I mean, what, and, but, but I also wanted to go to Harvard because I thought, you know, I remember when the course catalog came in the senior year of high school and I, I thought of it as a sort of, you know, potential, you know, you don't want to say intellectual paradise, right? But as a, as a, as a place where you would be taught certain things that would make you an educated person in a way that like the writers who I read and loved as a teenager seemed like sort of comprehensively educated people, people who knew, you know, who knew a lot of things about the world that were worth knowing, right? And so Harvard, you know, Harvard satisfied my ambitious side. It was a great, it was, it's, you know, if you are a ambitious person who wants to join the American elite, going to an Ivy League school is a really smart thing to do. Right. But um, and the stuff I wanted academically was there. And there were moments uh, when I sort of felt what I expected to feel. But they added up to, I'd say, like maybe the equivalent of one year out of four, two semesters out of eight. And look, college is college. You know, you have romances and heartbreaks and you drink too much and all these kind of things. I, I would never expect like, you know, 80% of your college time, depending on your personality, to be sort of devoted to the best that's been thought and said. But it seems like a good school should get it up to like 40 or 50%. And that's, and Harvard didn't, you know, Harvard didn't care to try, didn't want to try. I think that's true of not, not all schools, but most schools right now. There's an assumption that what you learn in, what you learn in high school is the only canon or corpus of knowledge that you need and college is about um you know networking and figuring out what your pre-professional track is going to be so i'd want yeah i'd want more for my kids i'd want 40 to 50 percent rather 
than 20% of their time to be educational in the deepest sense of the term. Right. Uh, I mean, one does some, sometimes have the feeling working in universities like that uh, the students' lives being in class is only like the top of the little tip of the iceberg and that the rest of, you know, the rest of their life, you know, they're, they're you know, uh, I mean, the, the business model is in a way exactly the same as the cruise ship, right? That um, you put all these <laughs> together for, you know, for, for four years uh, between 18 and 22. And, and right. um, you know, cruise ship has everything. It's got cafeterias, it's got gyms, it's got dance halls, you know, dormitories. Uh, and it also has entertainment, right? And so I'm the entertainment, the professors are the entertainment for a certain, this is what I think in my darker moments, but that's sometimes feels what the university, how the university sees things, right? Or how, what the common understanding is. Um, let me try to pose a, um, how do you think that universities should handle their role in the culture wars if they were if they were dedicated to, uh, you know, forming students or giving students some kind of vision of what the university should be or what an educated person should look like? Um, because that seems to me that's really part of the, the problem. The universities have become players or pawns in the larger culture war. How do you think universities should think about that? I mean, there's sort of a I have a boring answer which is that universities should employ more people who are, you know, right of center. Um, and it's a, it's a boring, it's a boring answer, well, but it's, it's but that's but, not a boring answer. Okay. That's a, well, it's just a very predictable answer, right? Like I try and be a little unpredictable in my answers, but, but I mean, I think it is, you know, one of the things that hap that's happened uh, in American culture is to go back to the meritocracy issue, meritocracy creates a segregation based on um, based on education and certain talents and so on. And over time, what's happened, not just in the US, but across the developed world, is you end up with a kind of party of meritocracy and a party of non-meritocracy, right? Um, and the party of non-meritocracy becomes very populist and anti-intellectual. Uh, it doesn't like the elites. It includes lots of rich people, but it's rich people who got rich outside the meritocracy, right? Like the interesting divide between rich people in this country is between people who get rich through the structures set up by meritocracy and people who get rich as small businessmen and entrepreneurs and end up like, you know, becoming voters for Trump. Um, and and that that's bad. You know, I think it's bad for the country and society, it creates this sort of weird stalemate that afflicts all of Western politics between a sort of, you know, an elite that nobody likes and a populist alternative that everybody's afraid of and doesn't, isn't really capable of governing. And, and it sort of makes the, you know, it's tended in academia to sort of, cons it's not just an academia moves to the left, it's that it becomes sort of more consolidated and conformist. And so you see this across the board with schools, but especially in elite schools, especially in Northeastern schools, you know, the, you know, it used to be 20 years ago that 10 or 15% or something of the faculty would describe themselves as conservative. And then it drops to 10% and then it drops to 5%. And, um, and again, that's not just the university's choices. That's also a reaction to populism, right? In the age of Donald Trump, if you're a professor, um, you know, at any major university, even if you have some conservative impulses, you probably don't want to identify with Trumpian conservatism. But it just creates a further cycle where then, you know, conservatives and, I'm sorry, 
um, conservatives and populists become more alienated from the university and, you know, in red states, they try and cut the university's funding, the university becomes more alienated from conservatives and you just get this, this really unhealthy polarization. And, you know, it's conservatives responsibility to do something about that, to try and fashion a political conservatism that isn't just anti-intellectual and isn't just, you know, conspiracy theories and nonsense, but it's also the university's responsibility to try and create the possibility of an intellectual conservatism within their precincts. And that means taking ideological diversity as seriously as you take racial diversity. And universities don't really do that. And, you know, there are excuses. There really aren't, you know, that many great conservative candidates for every postdoc position and every tenure track job. But no one would accept those excuses if you were talking about, you know, race or gender. You wouldn't be able to get away with saying, oh, we can't, you know, we just can't find African-American applicants. You have to work, you know, the logic, the logic of, diversity on the left also applies to ideological diversity. And so that's, you know, that, that's, that's, I think, the simplest way that universities could push back against the position that they've locked themselves into in the culture wars, while also moving themselves towards what they, again, theoretically claim to be, which is zones for um, intellectual engagement and sort of free argument and serious debate. Right. Okay. Thank you. So I'm going to turn now to, because we do have a pile of questions here. And since our audience uh, also- got a pile to, of answers. <laughs> uh, but are they the right answers uh, to the- uh, Okay. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to read uh, the first one. This is from uh, Josh Kotler, who is a freshman who is, is in the Lincoln Scholars Program. And so he's, uh, I think, subtweeting me here. But uh, <laughs> hello, and thank you, Mr. Douthat, for coming. Uh, my name is Josh, student enrolled in the Lincoln Scholars Program at AU. You mentioned radicalism is supplanting the liberal arts, but couldn't one say that what has been considered the liberal arts has always evolved throughout the centuries? Uh, to specify my point, why does including a new diversity of perspectives in liberal arts constitute a degradation? It doesn't at all. And one of my frustrations with the way the way radicalism has sort of, you know, the, the, the way sort of radical or left-wing movements have played out in academia is that you can imagine a alternative narrative of the last 30 years where the left said, cannons are good, cannons are important, <laughs> we support cannons, we just want to add to them and change them. And that has happened to some extent, but the dominant effect of radicalism has been toward sort of deconstructing canonicity rather than expanding canonical, you know, sort of, you, you don't have a strong radical push for great books programs, right? And, you know, great books programs aren't perfect and there's sort of a fetishization of great books. Like, you know, I, every, there, there's no perfect approach to the humanities by any means, but we would be, you know, when, when I, when I was in high school, right? Like I had a, you know, very nice, progressive liberal high school teachers whose view was basically the view, you know, the view of the questioner, right? That like they were custodians of a tradition of American and English literature. And they were also really eager to make sure that we were adding, you know, a Toni Morrison at that point, this was the 1990s, right? So she had just sort of become, you know, the big, the big figure. Um, and, you know, we we're adding a Toni Morrison, we're adding sort of a comparable list of, you know, female, black, and so on, writers, right? And, and that, you know, I mean, there's, there's always challenges with that, right? Like, you know, 
ultimately, if you're an American university and you're trying to do a canon, you know, it needs, you need to have some sort of boundaries and you need to figure out like, well, what is an American tradition? And we're teaching that primarily. And then we also have the global tradition. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're never, this is always going to be a sort of, you know, a messy process. But the idea that the point of the humanities is to transmit a tradition is fully compatible with the idea that you need a greater diversity of voices that you're transmitting than just what Columbia would have taught in 1947. And it's sort of, you know, it, it just strikes me as insane <laughs> that people in the humanities, more people in the humanities don't want to say that, right? So like in that, you know, in that Chronicle of Higher Ed endgame package, right, that I, that I mentioned, that I decided in, in, in the column, right, they had a debate, they staged a debate between, um, you know, a professor named Michael Clune from Case Western, who was, who said the humanities must offer a judgment on what is worth reading, right? You have to offer some kind of judgment to students. But then Gabe, Gabrielle Starr and Kevin Detmar from Pomona said, no, humanists are just teaching disciplinary procedures and habits of mind. We model a style of engagement of critical thought. We don't transmit value. And it seems to me that the star Detmar position is just like suicide <laughs> for the humanities. Like, how do you attract students by saying, well, we're teaching you a mode, a mode of analysis that, oh, you know, by the way, is not actually going to help you get a job at Apple or Google or anything like that. Um, like you don't, you know, there's, there's anyway, I'm, I'm going on too long, but the baseline no, is that you can have a, a, you can have a left-wing humanities, you can have a kind of multicultural canonicity. There are a lot of ways to approach this that aren't just like dead males and only the dead white males, but ending up with an approach that says we're just teaching, you know, critical thinking and we don't transmit anything of value is, I think, insane. Yeah. Okay, another question. This is from Tom Cleveland of the Jack Miller Center. Um, some conservatives at places like uh, the Heritage Foundation and the Claremont Institute have argued that it would be best for the academy as it now exists to collapse, perhaps some help with the government, we think about the executive order that just came down, so that less radical and more humane institutions could replace it. What do you think of that kind of argument? I mean, it's, I, I, the academy is not going to collapse. Um, now, the humanity, so if you just, if by the, by the academy, you just mean humanities departments. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, you can say maybe there, maybe if, if some combination of bad thinking, um, and bad incentives have led the humanities to this past, then maybe there isn't sort of a reform agenda right now. And you need to let things sort of go further and get a little worse before you can have, you can have renewal. Like that's always plausible in any situation of decline there. You may pass the point where sort of reform works and you may have to sort of go all the way to the bottom. But I think conservatives deceive themselves a little bit with the idea that like, in, broadly speaking, as big institutions, that universities are just going to collapse because, you know, there would be too many tenured radicals and people won't send their kids there. Or they'll send their kids to online alternatives and so on. And you know, I mean, again, maybe COVID changes this and makes you know, changes the dynamics of online a little bit. But basically what's going to happen in the academy is that um, there are fewer kids, right? We have a birth dearth in the US and population decline around the world. So a bunch of schools are gonna close. Um, 
over the next 15 or 20 years, maybe on an accelerated pace because of COVID. But what that will mean is something similar to what's already happened in my business, right? Where lots of newspapers have closed because the internet killed newspapers. But has that made, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post less powerful and important? And no, quite the opposite. As the smaller places close, the big players become more consolidated and more powerful. And I would expect that to happen in the universities as well. Like there's a reason that the top of the US News and World Report rankings just don't change. I mean, they change a little, like you can, you know, universities rise and fall, but nobody does, there's been no startup university that rivals, um, you know, Yale and Stanford in the last 20 years. And the online alternatives are, you know, effectively trade schools, not rivals. So basically, conservatives who want a different academy either need to figure out how you change one or many of those institutions from within, or they need to figure out how you actually set up a rival. And that means, you know, I mean, like, it, if, if I were running the next Republican administration, if such a thing ever happens, right, I, I might say, well, look, you know, if, if we, we should have, just as we had state land-grant universities, you know, we, we're going to set up five national universities, and they're going to be run you know, we're going to have uh, faculty appointments done by a bipartisan staff set up, appointed by Republicans and Democrats in Congress both. And, you know, and we're going to, we're going to build them to be cheaper alternatives to existing higher education. And we're going to, you know, you can imagine sort of the spiel. And maybe that's a crazy idea. Certainly it would pr prompt, you know, very strident reactions about academic freedom. But that's, you need some kind of no, there's no entrepreneur out there who's going to set up the, the conservative Harvard or the next Harvard. If you're going to have some radical change in the academic landscape, again, your options are transformation from, from within or some sort of political project to build literal institutional alternatives with the weight, not just of like, you know, whoever funds the Heritage Foundation, but the weight of like the federal government behind them. Can I, can I just add, uh, just to go back to the Heritage and Claremont thing for a while, I mean, those efforts might well have precisely the opposite effect, right? That they're going to entrench um, anti-racism or whatever into the university. So that might be something to take in, under consideration. I don't need you to respond to that. I just wanted to say it. Uh, another question. Um, this is David Palmer, um, who's actually an old friend of mine from the Federal Reserve. How much does- I won't, I won't hold that against him. Yeah. Uh, how much of a role does the astronomical rise in university tuition over the last half century play in the decline of liberal arts enrollment? Are students forced to su study subjects with a, harder, uh, with a higher return on investment, given their outlay? Would changes to student tuition funding have an impact on this decline? So I assume they would, it would, right? I mean, clearly there has to be some effect here of, you know, of being asked to pay so much money for college on the willingness of students to go into fields that, um, you know, or to make undergraduate studies that don't have an immediate sort of cash in value. And if they're doing graduate work to go into fields that definitely don't have an immediate cash in value. So yes, pres presumably, figuring out doing something about college cost inflation would have some effect on the viability of the humanities. You want to have a, add a couple caveats though, right? I mean, one is that sticker, sticker prices have gone up much faster than like average cost per student, right? Which has, which has gone up too. Um, 
The sticker price is the price that the rich, really rich people. The really rich people are the ones paying. Well, I mean, it's not just the really rich people that, uh, you know, the challenge, it's, it is like the sort of mass upper class, right? Not just the 0.1%, but the top two or 3%, but still that's a pretty, and well, that's a lot of people, the people who are applying and sending their kids to elite schools, but it's a pretty small fraction of the population. Um, but yeah, I mean, but yeah, so you have sort of a, the sticker price and the real price and the real price hasn't gone up as much. And in the same way, like, you know, you have some people who are really buried by a student loan debt, but like the average student loan debt um, in the U.S. is not as high as Bernie Sanders' Jeremiah's would make you think, which is one reason why Bernie Sanders is not actually the Democratic nominee for, for president. Um, wait, wait, a minute, wait a minute, let's not get off into... Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay. Sorry, I, I let I let electoral I didn't I let electoral politics intrude. Uh, we've we've been pretty good about avoiding. We've been good. We're at eight p.m. without without mentioning the November election. So, anyway, that that's just sort of the caution that that I that I would that I would say that that yes, the sort of the costs of college and sort of the the costs of the larger, you know, high school if you go to private high school college graduate school experience clearly have to play some some role in all of this. Um, but there are the, the, the sort of immediate figures you read about that cost increase are not the full story of what's going on. I mean, look, I would just say as a teacher, I mean, that the cost distorts the entire educational experience because people are so, it's all part of that, you know, world of anxiety that our students live in for whatever. It's right. It's right. It's a weird mix of anxiety, right. It's, it's anxiety, but also sort of the expectation of, as I think you said before, the sort of university as playground, right? It's like you're paying so much and you're anxious about it, but you also expect like more in the way of sort of, you know, gyms and pleasure domes, right? And I mean, it it doesn't, the reality is, right, the academic part of the university is, apart from like the, the research component, is really cheap, right? That's sort of the, that's, I mean, you know, maybe a little too cheap from the point of view of from the point of view of professors, but that, that is, but the sort of para-academic stuff, the stuff, not just administration, but everything that's sort of built up to make the experience worth, seem seem worthwhile um, is, is a lot more expensive. Right. Okay, so I think we're almost out of time, but I'm gonna ask one last question, which is uh, from my colleague, Alan Levine. Um, he writes, perhaps the most living and widespread aspect of the humanities today is film and TV about which you write as film critic for National Review. Please don't talk about Star Wars. That's what we ask of you. Uh, what might movies do to re-energize a culture of the humanities? And what are the best handful of films you've seen in the last few years? We're looking for advice. For our see, see, I'm, I can never, th this, is, this is a sustained problem in my professional life, which is that when people ask me, what are the good movies you've seen in the last few years, my mind just immediately, immediately goes blank. Um, but I will, I will try. So, so two, two things. I mean, one is one, one challenge in my own analysis, at least, is that um, the movies have been overtaken by their own form of what in my last book that you kindly cited, I called decadence, right? Which is not that they're, you know, sort of, gross festivals of nudity and orgies and people eating grapes, it's that they are stuck in this kind of cycle of blockbuster repetition, right? Where you're not gonna find renewal for the humanities in, I, I won't say Star Wars, but in the sort of endlessly cycling Marvel movies, right? You're not, I mean, there's, there's a sense in which 
all of pop culture has um, become trapped in a sort of 13-year-old mentality, like slightly pre-sexual, somewhat self-aggrandizing, um, sort of, you know, slightly childish mythoses, which are, can be very entertaining. Like I enjoy Marvel movies. I enjoy the Harry Potter saga. You know, I, I mean, I, but, but they're sort of, they're sort of, again, they're, they're like weird simulacra, simulacra of what the humanities are supposed to be. So, so the whole, like, I'm, I think young adult fiction is really bad. It's like bad. It's like sort of an anti-humanities in this, in this weird way. Anyway, you've taken me off on a tangent, but that's, a very curmudgeonly <laughs> tangent to close things out here. But I think that's the, that's the challenge right now, that sort of the pop, you know, one of the things that people trying to rescue the humanities will do is say, well, we need to be more accessible. We need to get more into pop art. Um, but pop art doesn't offer the material right now that it offered in the 70s and 80s and even down to the 1990s. So basically what, to revitalize the humanities with film, you just need to study the last great year of film, which was 1999 maybe coincidentally the year I was 19 years old and saw a lot of movies, but that was sort of the last, the last peak of like non-superhero cinema. So instead of recommending movies from the last two years, I'm going to recommend that you go to the, I think the ringer.com. Hold on. The ringer um, has a list of the best hundred movies of 1999, which tells you something about, yeah, no, no, the 50 best movies. I'm exaggerating the 50 best movies of 1999. And that rather than sort of parsing the, well, there are no movies coming out now, but parsing the last few years, just if you watched those, those, those 50 movies are, you know, if you want movies that, that are not, you know, from the forties or the seventies are relatively accessible. Um, Fight Club, The Matrix, Office Space, Magnolia, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Election, The Blair Witch Project, The Sixth Sense, um, eyes Wide Shut. It was just a tremendous year for movies. It was the last peak of Western civilization. Uh, any, you know, modern movie canon should start there. So that's my recommendation. The movies of 1999. This is what we pay the big bucks for. So I, I, the re I, 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 indeed. Uh, I hate to tell you this, but I was joking when I said that was the last question. Um, because we're actually going for uh, until 8.30. So forgive me, I'm, my, my mind is... Well, I can list all of the movies of 1999. <laughs> uh, okay, back to the, back to the, the, uh, the actual humanities. Um, Jeffrey, who is a graduate student at UCL, I'm not sure what that is. Uh, are there any genuinely radical changes you would like to see in administrative decision-making? What does it take to save slash revive the liberal arts? I mean... Um... I mean, I guess this, I'll try and think of something that's a little different from what I said before. I mean, I think the challenge, there's a question of sort of in academic governance, right? Like there's an interesting debate about whether, is, is the problem that the administrators have sort of taken over, right? And that sort of the professors no longer govern the university or is that, or is that a cop out and an excuse? Because the administrators are mostly drawn from the ranks of the of professors, even you know, to, to to some extent. And a sort of administrative governance maybe is sort of what professors want, even if they don't say they want. But I, I think somewhere resolving that question might be might be useful, right? Do we want a university 
run by its professors or not? And which, which is it better? You could imagine an argument that actually like, you want an administration that is not like the professoriate because the professoriate should be devoted to pedagogy and the administration should be devoted to administration. But you could also imagine a world that says, no, you want the professors literally running the university because that's the only way that you will prioritize uh, what, what they do. Um, but certainly, I mean, I guess another, so, so yeah, so some, somewhere there's an uncertainty there that, that is worth thinking about as you think about what, what, what you want an administration to do. I mean, I think also at a more basic level, you know, you, you want to hire, I mean, again, part, part of, you want to hire teachers, right? And part of how technocracy defeated traditionalism was that it said that the purpose of the university, the primary purpose is research. The teaching is secondary. We hire research scholars because we want output. Um, and that in turn also feeds certain radical modes in the humanities because to generate output you need to you know you can't just write appreciations of great books you need to interrogate them right to justify your place in the research university you need to have a a novel idea about huckleberry finn um and that's you know i mean you want people doing research research is good uh you need research universities but i i'd say at a lot of places that's gone way too far and you want more hiring based on whether people are good at teaching undergraduates. Um, and again, I'm biased probably because I went to Harvard, a school that's famous for not teaching <laughs> undergraduates and only hiring superstar faculty to do research. And there are plenty of smaller colleges that do a better job of this. But in general, nothing saddened me more in my encounters with academia than watching professors who I thought were really good at teaching not get jobs, not get tenure, not advance because they weren't publishing on the schedule that the, the system of outputs uh, requires. So I have a lot of thoughts about these things and I'm trying to restrain myself. But the only thing you I'll can, say- I mean, I'm talking a lot, so you're in okay, you know. um, I mean, it, it, within the, there's a story that I think has been underreported, which is that there's a whole group of people who are basically hired as teachers on non-tenure track Oh, right. That's really changed the, the character of the institution. But, and I, I think it, it um, makes people less likely to be very daring in the classroom. And so they, it, can, it you know, inclines to a certain kind of conformity just because that's the incentives of the situation. But you know, some universities, including ours, are almost you know, 45 or 50% non-tenure track but full-time faculty. Um, and that's a real class issue that yeah. I think is, is um, the right. Year. And that's, I mean, in my undergraduate years, my best, not all, but most of my best teachers fell into that category. And I'm incredibly grateful to them. At the same time, that was, you know, it was no way to make a living, you know, like, and, and um, not, I mean, not always, you know, obviously there are universities that treat those faculty better than others. Um, but in general, having this sort of two tier that kind of two tier system where you're, you know, it's still, you're still telling people that the teaching is less important than, oh, than absolutely. the research, yeah. right? And a lot of it comes out of the, the larger technocratic orientation of the university. And so like the stars of the department are off doing something else. And they say, well, we're going to allow these other people that we don't, you know, think as highly of. That's the right. message of the institution. Yeah. I, I want to be clear, that's not my opinion, but that's, I think the message of the institution. Um, but it might help if you if they were not on year-to-year -year contracts, for yeah. example. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and it would help them, you know, to pick up a different obsession of mine. It would help them like have families, right? Like, I mean, this is yes, the correct. 
the and, and also combined with the fact that the only way that modern universities can evaluate teaching is through Yelp reviews, basically, right? right? Which turn out to be racist and sexist and all you know horrible in all the predictable ways. Um, so, here's another question. Um, this is Donald Ant Antonin. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right. Who is an alumnus of St. John's College, Annapolis? Uh, Leo Strauss argued that the liberal arts serve to nurture an aristocratic spirit, otherwise absent in a democracy. F.R. Levis said the purpose of the academic study of English was to develop an elite core of readers such that new great writers could be recognized and understood. Does either rationale still make sense? I mean, yes, but with... Well, with, with a couple, there's a couple ways of looking at it, right? One, one is that, yes, I mean, Strauss is right that um, you want, that there are ways in which the study of the humanities is inherently elitist and inherently aristocratic. And in that sense, it's defensible on kind of Tocquevillian grounds, right? Because, you know, Tocqueville talks a lot about um, you know, how, how aristocratic elements can endure in a democracy and why by implication it would be too bad if they all disappeared, right? So to the extent that universities are um, sort of training grounds for an elite, then they can become places where a genuine aristocratic as opposed to purely crassly meritocratic spirit can endure. And that's, yeah, that's, that's a, that is still a reasonable case for the humanities. I also, though, am sort of drawn to a different, a different mid-century perspective, right? Which was the, you know, the democratization of the humanities was a big part of their, um, I think, their success and flourishing in that period. You know, in the, the period of sort of highest English department enrollments um, in the post-war era. So it was not just the idea that you know, you want a sort of secluded community of scholars and you want the university as a place where the philosopher can be protected from the perils of the demos and the city. It's also, I think you can also make a case that you protect the philosopher from the demos by making the demos more sympathetic to philosophy too, which again, doesn't mean that you expect every single American to read Plato, but I think more, I think more Americans can read great books and appreciate them than do. Um, I think more philosophy, political and otherwise, can be transmitted to a mass audience than is. I mean, you know, if you go back and like watch Bishop Fulton Sheen, right, the sort of Dr. Phil or Joel Osteen of the 1950s give his blackboard talks on TV in the 50s, no, he's not like the world's greatest philosopher, but he's doing some really impressive popularization of complicated theological and philosophical ideas in a way that, you know, maybe you get on the occasional podcast nowadays. But that I, you know, and that goes away in part because of changes in the media landscape, right? Fragmentation, you know, it's something that to some extent is only possible in a particular kind of mass market environment. But I don't think you want to give up on that on that aspiration. I think the two ideas are, are actually compatible with one another, that American democracy at its best has sort of sustained both an aristocratic element in various places, but also had some aristocratic aspirations among 
the you know the 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 common man as it as it were and that's something that does you know with the decline of the humanities and universities you also clearly just have the decline of museum going and um you know i mean book, book reading has declined fortunately not as steeply as some people feared and the kindle hasn't replaced the book thank god but still there's like people are reading less you know the internet has changed the way people read sometimes for the better mostly for the worse anyway there, there's just i think a, a larger story where the aristocratic and the democratic appreciations of great literature are not completely separable they actually have some connection to each other and it's not a coincidence that you have you know strauss starting his teaching career in the u.s at the same time that like book of the month club and you know those the sort of like you know the the slightly absurd but kind of impressive uh like you know sort of shakespeare for everybody kind of things are, are going on are going on too and yeah, i mean you know the cliche which is still true is shakespeare was mass market entertainment right like Right. You know, there's no world where Henry James is mass market entertainment, but there, there are a lot is, of dirty jokes in Shakespeare. There, there is there is a world where Shakespeare is. Um, yeah. No. OK, this is this is uh, I, I think this next one is uh, sort of more of a comment than a, than a question, but I'm going to read it um, from our friend Laura Field, um, who writes, um, does Ross Douthat not watch TV? Uh, I mean, movies now are bad, but this century has been the golden era of TV. And she instances The Wire and Fleabag. Uh, yeah, Fleabag. Fleabag's pretty good. So I, I'm not going to. Uh, I, I do. I do watch TV, and I I agree um, that some of the talent that was in the movies and has been sort of crushed and sucked out by uh, the the dominance of the blockbuster has migrated to television. Um, I do think, though, that the golden age of TV is somewhat in the rearview mirror. Um, and that you sort of can describe a peak that runs in late 1990s, just coincidentally when, I, when I'm, you know, coming of age, but a peak that runs from the late 1990s and sort of the premiere of The Sopranos through the late, you know, the late 2000s and Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And what you have now is basically overproduction of TV. So once people realized that, you know, people would binge watch endlessly, endless shows. Um, the opportunities for sort of auteur-like achievements on TV diminished because there was such a demand for TV talent that instead of like having, you know, a team of six great writers all working on The Sopranos, each of those writers gets hired to do their own Netflix show and the shows just aren't as good, which, you know, doesn't mean there isn't any quality out there. Um, you know, Fleabag, Atlanta, if it ever gets a third season. I was a big, you know, I was the the right-wing interpreter of Lena Dunham's Girls, which I thought was a, a sort of tremendous, tremendous dark achievement. So there's, there is good TV now. Um, but if you sit and watch like 10 Netflix and Amazon shows in succession, not that I've done this, um, what you notice is they're all like, you know, 40 to 50% as good as The Sopranos or The Wire or Deadwood or something. And they all seem to be sort of running off like some percentage of the talent that you need to make um, a really, a really great TV show. Um, so that's, that's my sort of, you know, 
yes to the golden age of TV, but right now I think is more like the silver or iron age. Okay, some, some more student questions. Alex Rabinowitz, uh, a student at AU, asked, do you think that the framework of technocracy in American education has also magnified STEM fields to the point of giving them a moral or expert authority over the humanities? Yes, sure. Uh, I mean, it's not, well, it's not so much that they have authority over the humanities, it's that they have an authority that the human, they have an authority that the humanities just can't claim, right? So it's not so much that like STEM fields get to tell you what you study in the English department. Um, it's more that STEM fields get to tell you that what you study in the English department isn't that important. And, uh, you know, if you are sort of a prominent, a prominent academic in the humanities, you don't have the same kind of authority as, um, you know, well, I mean, to pick a current example, Dr. Anthony Fauci, right? So. And, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci has, deserves to have authority, right? It's not bad to have sort of scientific technocrats in positions of authority, especially when a ravaging pandemic comes along. And you can see in um, certain aspects of our current president what happens when you don't have that kind of authority. So you don't want to be, you know, science, science is good. Um, it's, but, but it is the idea of science as a resolver of disputed questions, the idea that like we can just sort of trust the science on given things, even with the pandemic, right? Like there's a lot of questions around the pandemic that are just political questions or moral questions or questions of balancing competing goods that can't be resolved by science. And science has a lot to say about the pandemic. It has less to say about, you know, eth debates in bioethics or something to pick something close to your own your own background, Tom, right? That like, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson cannot in fact tell us all that much about, you know, the morality of euthanasia or, some, or something like that. But, but science also runs into its own problems, right? Where technocracy, th this thing we were just talking about, right? Where the university demands outputs, you get into things like the replication crisis in science, right? Where like the, if the goal if the goal of science is to generate research in order to prove that you are doing things in order to get your grants in order to sort of maintain your position in a meritocratic system, that's not necessarily the path to incredibly impressive innovation. And so, I mean, one of the ironies of the last 50 years is that even as science has sort of ascended in public prestige and has sort of become the only part of the university that really has self-confidence, you know, STEM fields have, really do have self-confidence, actual scientific achievement is not, it's, it's not what I think people expected it would be in the 1940s and 50s. It's sort of concentrated in internet technology. Um, it's, right. I mean, this is a separate argument that's not really about the humanities, but, but there's, been, there's been more stagnation, more academic fraud, and more sort of just, you know, bad churn it out, churn out unreplicable findings in science um, than the sort of you know, the sort of reputation uh, might suggest. Right. Okay, so here's another question. I'm actually going to put two questions together. Um, one is from Jack Guipra. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, do you think that these radical ideas like the questioning of the canon and the humanities uh, as fundamentally a tool for remaking society are merely the continuation of the modern project of the last 15, uh, the last 500 years? 
I think meaning going back to Descartes and Bacon and people like that. Um, and if so, is the difference merely the continued success or proliferation of those ideas, or is the current mood something different? I, I don't know. That's a very good question. Um, uh, you know, you guys, you, you had your last event was with Patrick Deneen. Um, and I think Patrick argues um, generally that what you see on the left today is itself sort of an inevitable extension of liberalism, right? That it's sort of liberalism becoming more itself and, you know, becoming sort of more, you know, that sort of liberal hostility to sort of, if there's a liberal turn against like free expression and free speech, it's not the betrayal of liberalism, it's the final fulfillment of it, right? That liberalism was always sort of pointing to this end point. Um, I'm not completely sure that's right. I, I sort of go back and forth. Sometimes I think that you should see certain elements of today's radicalism as what um, the cultural critic Wesley Yang has called a successor ideology that doesn't fully have a name the way Marxism had a name, but, tr but is playing kind of the role that Marxism wanted to play of saying like liberalism carried us this far, but we need to, we need to set aside some of the naive liberal ideas about rights and freedoms in order to fundamentally remake society in order to make it truly anti-racist or truly gender egalitarian and so on. Um, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that liberalism in the modern age, you know, began as sort of an offshoot of Christianity, but was also kind of infused with Christianity for a very long time. And that liberalism is sort of a set of procedures, right, that claims not to make as many normative moral judgments as prior systems, but in fact, it needs some kind of religious consensus to sort of settle some questions, to create a framework. Like what we were saying earlier about sex on campus, right? Like you can't actually have procedural liberalism as the way you deal with relations between the sexes. You need some norms, you need some rules um, that aren't just like, oh, we're two, you know, we're two free agents contracting sex. Um, and if in that way, maybe what we think of as the left right now is a kind of post-Protestantism. It's a kind of not, no longer Christian, but still more moralistic movement that's trying to reinfuse liberalism, technocracy, meritocracy, whatever word you want to use, with a moral system. And that moral system is different from what you know, the Protestants of the 19th century would have infused, but it's like, all right, here are rules, you know, here are rules for uh, when you can have sex, right? Here are rules for consent and power imbalances in relationships. Here are rules for how to talk about race. Here are, lang here are linguistic rules, right? The fact that like the modern, the current left is so focused on sort of linguistic rules and polytests and how should a white person address a black person and vice versa. Like, that sort of suggests to me that there is this way in which it's trying to not supplant liberalism, but infuse it from within to say, okay, we have our liberal procedures, but then in everyday life, you need some more explicit moral rules and anti-racism and feminism and a few other movements are going to supply those moral rules. So that's, that's another possibility. You seem to, you seem to see the successor ideology or however you, whatever you call it, um, as uh, maybe the right paradigm is the great awakening rather than Marxism or something like that. Maybe That's the second, yeah, that would be the second view, right? I mean, the, the idea of wokeness, right, is itself a sort of secularized version of awakening. So the second view would be like, this is what a great awakening looks like 
in an America where institutional Christianity has just faded too much to be its embodiment. And if you wanted to push that further, you would say, and it's not a coincidence, right, that this left-wing political awakening coincides with sort of weird, like pantheistic pagan new age stirrings, like the fact that the woke astrology, right, is a thing. No one was into astrology when I was in college. It was like, literally no one ever mentioned their sign to me across four years of college. And now like, you know, my nice, much younger publicist, when my last book came out, you know, like the second email she sent me was like, oh, I'm such a Virgo. That's why I didn't get back to you. You know, like, like there's just been a shift towards some kind of pseudo supernaturalism um, that has coincided with this political shift. And Ross, our equivalent again, it doesn't, sorry. sorry. Our equivalent of the horoscope is the Myers-Briggs, right? That's <laughs> what you say when you're in the bar trying to impress somebody. So, uh, or at least I'm told. Anyway, yeah, but yeah, so that's, there's some, there's something, there's something possibly religious as well as political going on. And it's not clear, it's, it's just not clear to me whether, yeah, whether Marxism or post-Protestantism has more explanatory power as a, as a framework. Okay, um, but it'd be a vindication of the view that human beings are somehow naturally religious or have a religious. Oh yeah, I mean, well, that view is just right. Like you know, secularism is a myth, and you know, I mean, yes, if, and and that I mean that the one thing we haven't brought up that I is worth mentioning, and it's an essay in that Chronicle of Higher Ed package that I keep mentioning, is the idea that part of the crisis of the humanities is a crisis of faith, right? That the humanities became for a version of that sort of Levis Strauss elite a kind of substitute for Christian religion, that you believe in the great works and the encounter with the great works as a kind of numinous transcendent experience. And so the decline of the humanities traces a similar process to secularization in the 19th century. And that's, I think, a really interesting and provocative idea that's worth thinking about. I feel critiqued. Um, I'm going to uh, just end with one more question since we, since we really are out of time. Would you, are there any, any books that you would recommend to us to read in, in the spirit of liberal education, things that, that we might read with first-year students that would be good for expanding our imaginations and helping us think more fully about the world? Um, I mean, the book I read as a first-year student that had the biggest influence on me was uh, Christopher Lash, I think, in The Revolt of the Elites. And I think Lash is a writer who has a, has a strong fan base that sort of waxes and wanes, but he was someone I encountered who was a critic of meritocracy, who articulated ideas that the, he sort of described things that I was seeing that I had no way to describe myself and came at it from a kind of unconventional left-wing conservative perspective that sort of synthesized left-wing and right-wing ideas. Um, and he has a bunch of, you know, books, the culture of narcissism and so on. I, I mean, I, I think, I think if he has readers, but more readers for Lash would be good. Uh, on a different, a different author I'd like to recommend, um, who is not writing about meritocracy at all, is the Polish author, the late Leszek Kolakowski, um, who is most famous for writing a three volume book about Marxism called Main Currents of Marxism that is like 17,000 pages. And so I can't claim to have read it, but he wrote a bunch of smaller books um, and essays about, a lot of them about religion and Christianity. Um, and, you know, again, to go back to my last point, like there is an entanglement between the decline of humanities and the decline of religion. And Kolakowski is, I think, in the position I think he took the position towards his ancestral Catholicism that a healthy humanities would take towards religion, which is not a sort of 
full scale, like you must believe in God in order to be a humanities scholar, but more a, you must take religious questions seriously and take religious truth claims seriously and like ponder, you know, there's, there's a famous story that Kolakowski was giving an essay and it was called something like The Devil in History, I'm getting it wrong, right? And two, two of his fellow scholars are sitting there and midway through one of them turns to the other and says, I think he's talking about the literal devil, right? Like, you know, they, they'd come expecting some sort of symbolic thing. And, and this is, you know, you read Kolakowski, you're not sure what he himself believes, but you can tell that he's really interested in and engaged with religious questions in a way that I think not enough humanists are um today so lash and kolakowski are my two two recommendations for you kolakowski also had a wonderful essay on reasons not to garden uh, just he, has an, <laughs> he has an essay also with the greatest title of my correct views on everything <laughs> i want to write a column with that title someday that the title of all your films uh ross i think we're out of time uh it's been wonderful um you know it's it's just really uh you, you bring a perspective that i think is really different from most of the things that we hear or all the things we hear on campus so um it's a breath of fresh air i'm sure we're going to be chewing this over and arguing with each other uh, I'm, my students will have lots of things to say to me tomorrow morning when we should be talking about simone de beauvoir so um, I will blame you in, in advance for that. I apologize to Simone de Beauvoir uh, in whatever uh, plane of the afterlife she finds herself. Um, we, uh, this uh, conversation will be up online and there will be, a, as soon as we can get a transcript, which sometimes takes a little while, but it will be on our website for anybody who, who wants to come back and rewatch and hear the Ross Douthat list of 50 movies or whatever it was. So Ross, thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. And thanks to everyone who tuned in or will tune in in days to come. Yep, and uh, so, and thank you to our questioners and, and especially thank you to the ones we didn't get to. Um, Ross, would love to get your emails, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> so uh, with that, we're gonna, we're gonna call it a night. Thanks guys.